Building a foundation for tomorrow's naval aviators, the Bell 407 GXI is the next generation advanced helicopter training system offering exceptional value and proven reliability. See the Bell 407 GXI in action at bell.co slash Navy 407. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my usual co-host, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine, Bill Hamlet. Hi, Bill. Hey, Ward. Happy Monday. Happy Monday to you. And we're very blessed to have our guest in the studio today. But before we get to him, yeah, we have a couple of uh, a current couple. events topics to go over. Yeah, so uh, this morning, USNI News, Ben Warner broke the story that the USS Ross, DDG, uh, headed up into the Black Sea, the fourth time a U.S. Navy ship has headed into the Black Sea this year, a significant uptick in opera- operational tempo for the U.S. Navy in the Black Sea, helping to reassure our NATO allies and our friends over there, particularly the Ukrainians and the Romanians and Turks, etc. So uh, that's kind of an interesting uh, news piece. And then uh, last week, we had the story that... Um, uh, Sam Legrone broke that uh, the the vice chief of naval operations, Admiral Moran, has been nominated to be the next CNO to replace Admiral Richardson uh, this summer. So uh, change Admiral, command on one August. One August, and uh, we understand Admiral Moran. Uh, yeah, Admiral Moran's uh, Senate confirmation hearings are coming up in about two weeks. Um, but the uh, very cool news uh, for us is that he is the speaker. Uh, at tomorrow's Maritime Security Dialogue uh, at CSIS on Rhode Island Avenue, downtown Washington, D.C., starting at 10 a.m. So you can see uh, VCNO Moran uh, and questions were, were kind of, uh, Pete was talking about this at our uh, department head meeting this morning, that he wants the questions to be geared towards Admiral Moran in his current role as VCNO because he's not been confirmed by the Senate, just been nominated to be the next CNO. But anyway, tomorrow morning, at CSIS, uh, downtown Washington, uh, at 10 a.m., you'll be able to uh, see Admiral Moran in person. And uh, we understand he's going to have a press availability after the Maritime Security Dialogue. So that's kind of exciting. And then the last uh, upcoming thing I wanted to mention is the annual meeting of the Naval Institute coming up on uh, April 25th, starting at 4 p.m., also at CSIS, uh, 1616 Rhode Island Avenue, uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, we've got a, a lot on the on the docket for that. Uh, Admiral Stavridis, our, the chair of our board, will be there. We'll be uh, announcing and uh, celebrating the Proceedings Author of the Year, the Naval Institute Press Author of the Year, the Naval History Author of the Year, the winners of the General Prize Essay Contest, the winners of the Midshipmen and Cadets Essay Contest from last year. And the guest speaker is the Honorable Ellen Lord, the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment. So action-packed, uh, open bar, uh, heavy hors d'oeuvres, always a great event, uh, networking, a chance to see you know old shipmates, uh, meet new people, meet new authors, uh, and uh, you know just just rub elbows with uh, with great people. So that's always a great event. Again, 25th of April at 1600 at CSIS. Uh, so we're really looking forward to that. Good stuff. So why don't we just get right to introducing our guest? Yeah, so our guest today, as you mentioned, in Studio C with us, uh, Captain Tal Manville, uh, U.S. Navy retired, former program manager for future aircraft carriers. That program led to the USS Ford program. 
he served on three aircraft carriers in his uh, career as an engineering duty officer. His final tour at sea was as chief engineer on the USS America, the old USS America, uh, CV-66. And he wrote an article uh, that we published uh, online last month uh, when the Navy uh, came out with its uh, you know, its budget proposal for FY 2020. And in there was the proposal to uh, decommission the USS Harry S. Truman uh, early in her career instead of uh, refueling uh, that ship at the 25-year point coming up. The Navy decided that it would save money uh, by not refueling the Truman and doing a a dual buy for the Ford class carriers, uh, CVN 79 and 80. Uh, so Tal Manville, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast, and we look forward to talking to this about this uh, article. Well, thank you for having me. Your your piece was the third in a series of three articles about that news that we uh, that we published, and yours said yours the, the the headline of your article was "Refuel the Truman." It's the law. So tell us about the law. The law requires uh, eleven aircraft carriers. Why eleven? The reason why there's 11, and uh, one of the jobs I had to do in the Navy was also uh, lead the development of the maintenance plan for the Nimitz class to support that. So why do we need 11? Well, since World War II, we have been continuously forward deploying at least three aircraft carriers at the same time, all right, around the world. Right now, we do it to the uh, Arabian Gulf, we do it to the Mediterranean, and we do it to the uh, Western Pacific. But that can change. But but since 45, we have done at least that. Sometimes we've put more. When uh, Leon Panetta was the uh, Secretary of Defense, he wanted two aircraft carriers in the Persian Gulf to apply pressure on the Iranians about the about coming to agreement on a treaty for them developing their uh, their uh, nuclear power. Um, so at least three. And then for a crisis where a crisis can turn into a conflict, we want to we want to surge at least three more, at, at least from three from the ones that are working up towards deployment to relieve those three that are already forward, and or three from the three that just have returned that uh, that could also then be sped up to go so we can get six for a uh, for a for a conflict. And we did that for Desert Storm. We've done that also for Iraqi Freedom. So putting that, so that requires that you have nine operational aircraft carriers. So the tenth aircraft carrier is allowed to be in a one-year dry docking availability where it's on the blocks for a year and is not ready, readily deployable, but it's operational in the fact that it has a crew to help do the uh, the testing of the repairs that are done during that time. And the same is then for the 11th aircraft carrier to be in a scheduled maintenance availability, because that's what the law says. It has to be in a scheduled maintenance availability, <clears throat> which is the midlife refueling overhaul, where it gets a new fuel plus a tremendous upgrade of all, all the ship systems during that time that takes well, over now three years to do. So that requires 11th. It would be nice if we had a 12th, just in case something breaks that we need to do that. And in fact, after World War II, as a result of the Korean War, there was what was, uh, there's a famous uh, National Security Directive, National Security Council Directive 68 that said 12 is the right number of aircraft carriers. But given 11 or 12, that's the law. Now in 2005, well, and up to 2000, the Joint Chiefs required 15 
aircraft carriers. But that was kind of being, that wasn't being followed down. And so they were, they were stepping down from 15 to 12 by 1998. And then we had problems with the John F. Kennedy. And so the uh, Congress put the law in 2007 that basically said, first they said in 2006, 12 aircraft carriers. And then when we had to retire the Kennedy for, for reasons we won't talk about today, uh, it, it then became 11. So 11 became the law. In 2007. In 2007. And has been the law since then. And has been the law of that. Through sequestration, through the budget cut, all of that. All of that. And also, every time that the aircraft carrier program had to come up and say, ah, we're having a little more problems with the Ford, where where we were granted a waiver to that requirement in 2009, every year, every time that the carrier program office reported out, how you doing on the Ford? Oh, we need a little more time. They got beat up. So DOD was very aware of that law. And what I think happened to our acting secretary of defense is that he was drinking from a fire hose trying to get the budget because he was not only the deputy, he was also the acting secretary of defense. And I don't think his, his underlings at the Department of Defense really emphasized the law to him because he thought the dual buy got the Navy an extra aircraft carrier that allowed them to give up the refueling. That wasn't the truth. That, that deal for the dual buy was cut primarily just for the cost savings of buying two things at once rather than one set of, of material. And so, but, um, the acting secretary of the Navy. In fact, I think uh, Sam Legrone kind of broke that, that he was unaware that the dual buy wasn't a quit, wasn't an either or for the refueling. Because in order to maintain 11 aircraft carriers, you also need to refuel the, the remaining Nimitz class as they come up. And there was a daisy chain of that, that basically said um, that to refuel um, or, or to, or to uh, replace the Nimitz, that we needed a CVN-79, which is the second of the Ford. To replace the Eisenhower, we needed CVN-80. To replace CVN-70 in 2028, we needed the, um, which is the Carl Vinson. We needed CVN-81, which was the second ship of the dual buy. And so the only real chance about this was, well, what this showed was that there was that the, there was no extra aircraft carrier that as a result of the dual buy. Now there was an opportunity. Well, the opportunity to exist to increase the number to twelve, which I would highly encourage. But obviously those are big bucks, and that's a big problem. But that doesn't come until CVN eighty two, and then what you have to do is that you basically have to build two aircraft carriers in about eight years, where normally it takes 12 years to build. And so that process is actually a 12-year process to increase the number of aircraft carriers by one. But that also assumes that you're also doing the remaining refueling overhauls. So um, I think this caught uh, Secretary Shanahan because he was trying to do the entire budget, trying to make, uh, trying to do the best job he could. And I think the underlings in the, uh, in the Navy side of the House of DOD failed to uh, tell him about the importance of the law because the law was basically specified because this isn't the first time OSD has tried to get rid of an aircraft carrier. They, uh, they, during the Obama administration, the Obama administration twice uh, looked at not refueling um, 
which ones they were. Lincoln and Washington. Yeah, Lincoln and Washington. And so those carriers were also looked at. And so this wasn't anything new. It seemed to catch uh, Secretary Shanahan uh, short. But in all honesty, that's not surprising because the guy has been drinking from a fire hose. Well, you mentioned in the article that when Obama or the Obama administration tried to not do the refuelings for Lincoln and Washington, by the time it got to Congress, and obviously Congress makes the executive branch uphold the law, so it got overturned in Congress. So neither of those things happened. Um, so as you've mentioned, there is precedent for this attempt. Is this attempt at its face like what they intend, or is there something else going on here from a budgetary standpoint that DOD is trying to see happen? Well, and, and I mean, some- is this a threat that that are they playing chicken here in any way, or is this is this a straightforward request? Well, I think from the reaction that that uh, that uh, Sam Legrone reported that that this caught the Secretary of Defense by surprise. I think it was a genuine uh, attempt on his part to try to re. You know, what caught Secretary of Defense by surprise? That the fact that the dual buy didn't get him was an either or with the shipyard for refueling or dual buy. Okay. So I think that just caught him short just because he was paying attention to a lot of other things. Then again, aircraft carriers have not been a valued asset with the Department of Defense. When I was uh, coming forward with the new aircraft carrier program, one of the things that we showed was that uh, we basically were able to to dismiss a small uh, aircraft carrier that could only carry uh, 40 aircraft. And then became, okay, 60 or 80. And then when we showed that the difference between uh, that you get 100% more strike sorties with the larger air wing than the medium air wing of 60, um, the, uh, the head of the PA&E, Dr. Mike Gilmore, said to me, he said, Captain, don't you understand? It's not the cost of the aircraft carriers that's the problem. Oh, that's new to me. <laughs> okay. It's the cost of the aircraft. And so Dr. Gilmore was trying to was trying to manage the number of tactical aircraft that the Department of Defense was buying by managing the size of the aircraft carriers. Now we anticipated this, and and as a result of some really good work by a CNA an analyst by the name of Dr. Dave Perrin, he then said, "Well, Doctor, look at this. We then because how we determine that 8,000 versus 4,000 strikes, 8,000 for the four large air wings and 4,000 for the medium air wings, was a campaign analysis using a thunder called the thunder campaign thing that was created for Desert Storm. We then put the medium air wing on the large, on the large decks, and that improved the strike sorties by 40% from 4,000 to 5,600 just by changing the platform. And that was a eureka moment for me when I first discovered this, when we first did this. Because of the sorties you could launch per cycle, or what, what was well, the difference there? The, re- the reason why is, first of all, you can put all, all back then, uh, you can put all 60 aircraft on the flight deck right. of a Nimitz class. Yeah. So you didn't have to worry about sea state of transforming up the aircraft elevators. So that improved it also. Also, the magazines were uh, one-third larger, so you didn't have to rearm and refuel that time. So you were able to stay on station for, uh, during that 28-day campaign, the entire campaign. And so that in itself, 
And Dr. Gilmore then got it. He goes, I get it. So in fact, we, and in fact, since that time, around 2000, we quit deploying with 80 aircraft on a deployment. And we got down as far as I think um, two years ago, I believe it was 65 aircraft from, from 80. So that was a, a significant reduction, and that, that was a result of that we really had no peer competitor. Well, now, now that's changing. And interesting enough, when the POTUS, when the President of the United States, went to uh, Korea for the first set of negotiations, we deployed three aircraft carriers over there, and it was reported that they had full complements of 80 aircraft. I'm not so sure that the reporters were told they had a full complement and they completed the sentence meaning 80 aircraft, or they were just told that they, they had a full aircraft. Because to try to expand from 65 or 67 to 80 is quite a problem, particularly during the time where we had sequestration that was really inhibiting the, uh, the uh, turnaround time for the repairs on the aircraft. The other thing that was kind of interesting, if you look at the, um, you look at the explanation that the Navy wrote I think this was dictated to them by the Department of Defense. I don't know this, but I'm sus suspicious of it because it, it, is, it is rather a strangely worded document, and I'll read it right now. As part of this budget request, now this is in the Navy's budget justification or explanation. As part of the budget request, we made this difficult decision to retire CVN-75 in lieu of its previously funded complex overhaul that was scheduled in FY 2024. This adjustment is in concert with the Department of Defense, Defense's commitment to the proactively pursuing diversified investments in the next generation advanced and distributed capabilities, including unmanned and optionally manned systems, and to provide a strong industry demand signal for the same. This approach pursues a balance of high-end survivable manned platforms with a greater number of complementary more affordable, potentially more cost-opposing, and attritable options. What the hell is an attritable option? Well, I think that means drones, right? Yeah. So if I was to just summarize in three words, it's Navy punting, well, this is one of three words, <laughs> Navy punting on an aircraft carrier for drones. That's, that's what my takeaway is, right? That, which is a huge doctrinal and attitudinal shift. And then the last part here, where you, you mentioned what Code 10, Section, uh, or Title 10, 8062 states. Again, you, you mentioned that in law, it's manifest that we have to have 11 aircraft carriers. And so what the Navy has explained in its budget decision is we're okay with 10. And so to me, that, that seeding of ground is pretty huge. And, and I, it just makes me wonder what else, because you don't see services punting on their signature platform in, in this way, you right. know, willy-nilly. Well, here, but here is the thing that I remember being reminded when I uh, testified to the staff. I never, I never testified to the members of Congress, but I went to staff briefings and I briefed the staff. They reminded me, Captain, the Congress supports and maintains the Navy, not the executive branch. And so one of the things that the Navy first needed needed to do was to know that there was a law requiring 11 and would have had to have asked for a waiver. Nowhere in the Navy explanation is there a request to 
get a waiver for the law, okay? And in fact, if you saw Senator Warner, who was on the Senate Armed Services Committee, he was rather amused at this explanation, okay? And so he knew that the first thing the Navy needed to have done was work, work the, uh, the, the trap lines for a waiver. And that never occurred, and nor was that brought to the attention of the Secretary of Defense, who was who was also should have been made aware. And he kind of got blindsided at that at his first hearing. And so, um, I have a feeling that this Navy explanation was dictated to the Navy by the Department of Defense, and they said, "Okay, we'll put in this." And to me, I don't think you can find anything. Uh, more bureaucratic double speech than if these attritable options are potentially more cost imposing, are they more affordable? That, that is a classic demonstration of bureaucratic double speech. Well, you, in the article, you demonstrate the folly of that logic quantitatively, right? So it costs about three and a half billion dollars to recore a ship, um, and the cost of building a new one and operating a new one. Uh, is what? How much more than that? So, well, yeah, right? eleven, twelve billion dollars. Okay, so you know, if if you're thinking myopically, then then three billion, three and a half billion dollars in a single NDAA might be a substantial money, you know, amount. But if you think in a five year defense plan, not to mention the twenty five serv- year service life of an aircraft carrier, well, fifty years total, twenty five after yeah, that, overhaul, between refuelings, right? between yeah. refuelings, yeah, um, uh, then that's that's. Not a smart use of funds, you know, just not to mention does it violate the law, but that's not a smart use. Of right, money. because because we have uh, the, the Nimitz class when it was upgraded from uh, from the Forrestal class and particularly from the from the Enterprise, which was the force, which was the nuclear version of the Forrestal class. So let, let's go back because you, you're you know a lot about aircraft carrier okay. history because what you just went through. Uh, is just common knowledge to you and me, but let's remind the, the audience. So we had conventional carriers up until CVN 65, Enterprise. What, what year was Enterprise built? Uh, 19, uh, the, the year before the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. Okay. okay. Came out in the fall of 62 and the spring of 63 was the Cuban Missile Crisis. And in fact, it went on a, uh, it went on a road show it went to the Mediterranean, then got called back from the Mediterranean to participate in the uh, blockade of Cuba. So okay. that so, was designed. Was that supposed to be a class of ships? That was that was a that was a nuclear that was a nuclear uh, version of the Forrestal class. Now the Forrestal class was designed to be the the sea leg of the nuclear triad before the boomers basically replaced them. So that required basically maximum reliability. So that meant redundancy forward and aft, port and starboard. So you had four independent propulsion plants where the plants were were distributed so that their exposure was limited, uh, port and starboard, and then forward and aft. We had four aircraft elevators, four catapults, four sets of arresting gears, and and that's how that was done. Um, what Admiral Nimitz was uh, not Admiral Nimitz. Rickover. Uh, Rickover was able to do, and in fact, Rumps uh, uh, McNamara kind of re- required him. He wanted to have a four reactor forestall class. He wanted the Enterprise to have, um, or the, the Nimitz class to have four reactors, not two. 
his his troops came to him and said, "Boss, we can we can do fine, and we can reduce the number from uh, six. Well, on Enterprise, well, Enterprise, no, Enterprise had eight reactors, eight, eight okay. reactors, wow. thirty-two steam generators, sixteen electrical generators, all under the auspices of survivability, right." And f- right? yeah, and over five thousand main steam valves that are the crown jewels of any propulsion plant. So they reduced that down from five thousand main steam valves to less than twelve hundred. So a four to one reduction. They reduced the number of electrical generators from sixteen to eight. Okay, but the Nimitz class, because of reasons um, that only four of those eight reactors or Electrical generators were for ship's force. The other four were for just the propulsion plant. That turned out to be a wasteful uh, division of the electrical power. And so we were able to step down from that. Now, the Ford, if you just looked at the main steam valves. Well, don't don't jump to Ford yet. Okay. okay. So now we're, so we only build one CVN 65. Right. And then we go back to building two two conventional carriers, carriers. America, America, which you and I both sailed on, and JFK. JFK, and you and I, I sailed on JFK too. I sailed on JFK as well. Okay. Um, And and, and then then we're back with the Nimitz class to a conventional or a a nuclear carrier with now two reactors instead of what Enterprise had had was eight. And specifically built for 50 years, which required that we had to increase – for instance, like the specifications on rotating machinery from uh, from a million rotations to a billion rotations, all right? And as that turns out, that's probably not enough. And we even increased that for the Ford to uh, 100 billion I, Are those rotations. numbers? So screw, you're in engineering. Rotations. Yeah, just rotations of, ro- of rotating machinery over 50 years. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So is that a number that heretofore had been in the world of engineering? A uh, billion yes. rotations? Yes. Really? What other industries well, no. had to do that? Uh, no, no. I Actually, I think you're right. I don't know of any other industry, but I do know that 10 to the 6th was kind of like the standard for rotating machinery. Then it became 10 to the 9th for the Nimitz class. Okay. And what they we've recently have found out that that hasn't been quite good enough for some of the pumps in the in the Nimitz class, and so we've and so we've had to upgrade that as well. Okay, so we make. Um, let me do the math here. How many Nimitz class carriers do we have? Ten. Okay, um, and then along the way, we decide that uh, we're not going to continue the Nimitz class. Correct. Um, and so that gets us into what has become Ford class, CVN-78. Right. Um, so you were at the ground floor of all of that. Right. As an EOD or EDO, not much different than being EOD, EDO. Um, and you were at the at the, the, the Ford program. Right. Um, so talk to us about some of what we thought we were doing and, and, and some of what happened along the way and, and, and so forth. Well, one of the things that, that was done, um, and in particular I kind of look for this, was – uh, I had read a biography of uh, of the uh, of the director uh, Cecil B. DeMille, and he said, "If you're ever going to tell a story well, you have to define it in one sentence." So I started, and later Rumsfeld then required this as what was called the critical capability. But I started looking for the critical capability, and I found it in the mission need statement, which is a document required that basically the DOD imposed upon the Navy because the Navy now had to put it through the 5000 process, which is the DOD-controlled, mandated by Congress, 
by which all things are are required, acquired, bought, and that required a critical uh, capability statement, which I have memorized. I say it in my dreams. Independent of land bases, the aircraft carrier's air wing must simultaneously perform surveillance, battle space dominance, and strike in extended combat operations forward, period. So if a design didn't meet that criteria, it was set aside. We looked at 76 different concept designs, from, and we were basically going small, medium, large, 40 aircraft air wings on ships designed for 40 aircraft, 60 aircraft air wings with ships designed for that amount, and then 80. Were the options all nuclear-powered? No. We had uh, diesel, uh, gas turbine, and nuclear. And so we had that. In the very beginning, I mean, one of the things that when I uh, brought the program up, uh, the program, I, I had only had two weeks to prepare, so I went out and saw Dr. Killian, who was the head of the house side of, of acquisition. And he was the man who kind of figured out where all the money was going. And I was going to give $10 million to the diesel guy, $10 million to the gas turbine guy, and $10 million to naval reactors. And he said, no, 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 you got you to figure out what you're going to do when you grow up. So, so we then had to create a, a propulsion plant decision, which we did uh, a year later. And it was going to become a nuke. And then when we did the study that I talked about with the 80 versus the medium air wing, where the um, it was a big deck nuke was the answer. What now, year is that? When was that was 1998. And so, in 98... So over 20 years ago that those, those exactly. basic level requirements for the Ford class were set in stone. Right. Now, wh- now what is interesting, that this requirement was basically executed with the exceptions of the Lexington and Saratoga CVX, or CV2 and 3 in 1929. Okay, and that's when we put about 80 aircraft or more, 80 to 90 aircraft. We loaded them all up. We flew them from about uh, at least 100 miles out, and we, we flew off scouts, surveillance, fighters, and, tor- and torpedo attack, battle space dominance, and bombers, strike. So in 1929, 90 years ago, we were operating with this critical capability. So... All we were doing, and one of the things I was also in charge to do, was to maintain the core capabilities of naval aviation from from aircraft carriers. And that was the critical capability. Surveillance, battle space dominance, and strike and extended combat operations forward. Just just modernized for the 21st century. Right. And so it it was kind of interesting. History kept on repeating itself. Yeah, absolutely. So, and the need for at least 11 carriers to me is, is, uh, is absolutely vital for the defense of our country because who knows what's going to happen. So if, if this becomes precedent, if we, if we decide, um, that this is a viable way to, uh, reprogram money in, within a budget, as you mentioned in the article, so Truman is CVN 75. We're talking about. Um, the overhaul in 2024. Now, this daisy chain that happens, um, you get Reagan in when's there in 2020. Yeah, when would that happen? Yeah, in 2026, you'd have to uh, refuel Reagan. And then in um, 2028, sorry, am I looking at this right? right. You'd have to, you'd you have have to, to do, do the Bush. The Bush, right? Which is the last of the Nimitz class. Right. Um, so, 
And at the same time, you're not building Ford class um, proportional to the taking away of Nimitz class, right? right? So we could really get down to um, like eight or seven aircraft carriers if we don't do this right. And the... And the other things that also occurred at the shipyard that's also significant but uh, but was was discounted is that that indeed what's going to happen is that that RCOH is going to – you're going to have a crew standing around. You have about uh, 3,000 shipyard workers who are very well um, uh, trained and skilled to do the RCOHs because RCOHs require that you're working with hot plants, okay, radioactive plants. You're basically also doing you're you're gutting the ship. So we have now come through six, or or this will be the this will be the sixth, is that right? Or no, the seventh RCOH. So that workforce, which is not part of new construction, which is for the refueling overhauls, will be sitting around. That highly skilled workforce isn't going to sit around very long. Yeah. Okay. So the shipyard's going to have a tough time. Well, and accessing the power plant or the reactor is quite a trick, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember on Enterprise when I was aide to air land, Enterprise was in the yards doing its refueling. And if I'm remembering this right, you had to actually go through the flight deck, right? All the way through the flight deck to get down to the reactors, right? Um, you know, that's like doing heart surgery going through the top of your skull. Um, you know, and, and, and so now to your point, this, the, the, the skills needed to do this are, are not like you can just go anywhere and, and, and some, some shipyard is going to know, you know, figure out on the fly how to do this. There's just one shipyard that does this, right? This is HII and Newport News. It's Newport News shipbuilding. Now the, the, the interesting part about it is that the Nimitz class designed it so it doesn't go through the O3 level in the flight deck. It it goes to the hangar bay. okay? Okay. But the um, and then how do you get it off? Do you take it off the the, the ladder by where the ele- elevators are? Or something? Yeah. How, well, I mean, you how, build a big how ramp. Big, how big is a is a is a reactor? Well, you can't take the reactor out. Uh, the The original I mean, reactor sort of stays. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It's a big. It's a it's a big round. Well, so explain this. Explain what you're just talking about. So you, what it looks like. What is, happens when I recore a ship? Well, it's, refuel a ship. All the cores, there are there are a classified number of them, but it looks like a pencil. It, it looks like a coffee cup with pencils in it, okay. all, all screwed around. So you pull them out. As you pull them out, you have to basically put them in a protective sheet that, that uh, keeps the radiation contained. And you pull out one by one, and then you truck them off in these big uh, lead c- uh, containers off the ship one by one. Um, and then so, what? You bury them at sea. What happens then? No, you they, they uh, go to Hanford, right? Yeah, they go to Hanford, where Washington, they are, where they are put in a uh, DOE facility. In a DOE facility on the surface, so that everyone keeps their eyes on them. We, the Navy, does not bury them below okay. ground. They okay. want to keep their eyes on them in case something bad happens. Okay. However, so that's done. So that's where every former reactor or core element is since the beginning of the navy using Correct. nuclear power right okay right and right now the the enterprise is now being um i think it's it's already been taken around to uh, bremerton where the last uh, assembly or disassembly of the propulsion plant which is near hanford where, okay. where all that stuff goes now the interesting part about the enterprise when they first did that 
They did it in nine months. Nine months. Wow. How, how could they do that? It was right after the Cuban Missile Crisis, so we were on a war footing. We can't do it that quickly. And in fact, um, because of the labor force, back then they had over 30,000 shipyard workers at Newport News, and they were able to, to ha- hammer that out, and cost was no option. Just get it done. And it was done less than nine months. Now it takes three years to do it. And most of that is not a result of the nuclear power plant. They could, they could refuel that, they could refuel that ship in about 18 months. It has to do with the obsolescence of all the electronics on board the ship. Everything that is electronic that is installed is going to be ripped out. They're going to reconfigure combat. They're going to reconfigure the intelligence center. They're going to reconfigure all the electronics all around, which means all that cable's got to be pulled, new mast, new island. Actually, the island, uh, the top of the island is restructured for PryFly. Pry, primary flight control is going to be expanded so that all the, uh, all the squadron reps have, a, have more than this little place to sit behind the air, I, the boss I, I and the air boss. You've been there. Yes. And so, so there is a tremendous amount of stuff. And that's not driven by the nuclear refueling. They could, we could probably do that in 18 to 24 months, but now it's going to take uh, well over three years in order so to. So is all this baked into the three and a half billion dollars? The six billion dollars. The, oh, the okay. three and a half billion dollars. Oh, I is, got it. I got it. Six and a half billion total price paid for overall. Okay. Is, is what they thought that they could reprogram. But one of the things that they found out about, and this is kind of going back to this thing, why it's so an inefficient decision, is that, well, then, you just don't lay up a nuclear aircraft carrier. You got to get rid of the nuclear fuel, all that spent fuel. Yet you have to you have to strip out the nuclear plant that all those parts that are radioactive, and then you got to tow the ship up to Bremerton and then cut it to pieces. Okay, and so so that the cutting the pieces, the scrapping can take longer. Okay, but the stripping out is the big cost. So that's and that costs about three billion dollars. So this idea that they were only they were only going to get half of of, of what they thought, and yeah, so much much better to over, to uh, amortize all those costs over fifty years rather than twenty five years. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it also, uh, I think you started to mention earlier that uh, Senator Warner from Virginia was one who was asking pointed questions about this decision when uh, when Acting Secretary Schaefer, you know, was. Uh, Shanahan. Uh, or Shanahan, sorry, when, when Shanahan was, uh, was, uh, you know, in front of, in front of Congress last month. Uh, and he was, you know, he was kind of, the decision. It was interesting. He was kind of cut short and he kind of knew that, that Shanahan didn't understand the dual buy and the refueling as well as he did, but he's also the senator from Virginia. And so the shipyard had him up to speed on the governor. And he was, I thought he was quite nice to the acting secretary of defense. He didn't because if McCain was there, oh, Katie barred the door. <laughs> <laughs> because I don't know if you saw the the hearings for uh, Shanahan with uh, with McCain, but it wasn't pleasant. How do you think this is going to go? What, what 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 do you think is actually going to happen? That the Truman will be refueled, uh, and in fact, the uh, the Democratic representative on the House side is from Norfolk and she said this is this is ridiculous we are not going to waste half the ship's life and uh, and not refuel it plus the fact because the in order to make the fuel takes a long time 
and it's and it's um, that process is not is not uh, well well used. It takes a, a much longer time, and so it's paid for with different funds, so that the fuel's already there. So the fuel is not part of the six and a half billion dollars. So what are we going to do with a whole set of fuel? Are we going to hold it around for the next one? Oh, by the way, we've also starting b- buying the refuel for the next RCOH that follows the Truman for uh, f- for the Reagan. So. Um, yeah, it just doesn't seem like a well thought out reprogramming of funds, you know, right. really based on what you're saying. Well, Tal, you and I have known each other for a long time. Uh, we, I, I, we actually met um, when I almost hit you with a golf ball. <laughs> yes, um, a story that Tal likes to tell. I was in 1998 when I was first here teaching, and uh, so thanks so much for coming into the podcast today. Fantastic story again. It's on uh, online. In fact, we've just put it back in front of the firewall, the paywall, because you were on the show today. Um, it's called Refuel of Truman. It's the law. So uh, we we'll look forward to getting our readers to check that one out if they haven't already read it. And we look for for more on this topic from you in in the in the days going forward. Yeah, this is uh, probably one of the first nuts and bolts our uh, podcast uh, episodes we've had in a long time. We talked about. You know, turning machinery. We talked about shipyards. We talked about you know, right, right down. I mean, Tal has been in the middle of the fight for a long time. He's the guy. Absolutely. Thanks again for coming by, Tal. Appreciate it. All right, that's it for this uh, week's episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. The Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the Bell Four Hundred Seven GXI helicopter bringing advanced training technology and best value in life cycle sustainment to the next generation of naval aviators. See the Bell 407 GXI in action at bell.co slash Navy 407.